have a friend who's a, nutrici- a nutritionist, and he's a personal trainer, and, and I think he's, he's quite the health and fitness expert, at least in my own book. Anytime I interact with him, I'm always very, very impressed. For me, though, I just wish that the relational proximity that we have mattered when it would come to my own personal health and fitness. Like, I, I wish that merely being his close friend and us texting and keeping in touch, that it would mean that naturally I would benefit from, that there'd be a natural byproduct from his wisdom and his lifestyle choices. But I know even if Lindsay and I invited him to move into our home and, and we kicked one of our kids out of their bedroom and then gave it to him, I know even then it wouldn't instantly or naturally change anything about my own health and fitness levels. I mean, even if I told him, I'll go with you to the gym, it, it wouldn't have any impact on me or any more impact on me than if I said, how about if we carpool to the ice cream parlor? Because unless I go into the gym with him with intention of doing something with what he says, with the instruction that he gives, well, then it has no actual meaningful byproduct or impact in my life. It's funny, when he and I spend time together, he's, he often reminds me, one of his pet peeves is when t- people tell him, yeah, we, I really want to hang out with you. We should get together sometime. How about if I meet you at the gym and we can hang out? And it's a pet peeve for him because he doesn't go to the gym to hang out. He goes there to lift weights. He goes there because he's, he's pursuing a, a more healthy lifestyle. He's not there just to chit and to chat with people. He's not there just to hang out. Um, for me, that, it's a difference between he and I. Not that I go to the gym at all. That's, that's the main difference is that I really don't. Amen. But for my connection with my friend to have any real impact on my health, I'd have to be willing to yield to his advice or to adhere to his instruction about what I should put in my body and then to put into practice what he says about how active I should be. It's really very, very, very simple when you think about it, that watching workout videos from your couch doesn't make you healthy any more than watching HGTV from your bed makes your house any prettier. If you want to be healthy, well, then you have to pick up a weight, or if you want to change in your home when watching... Um, some design show on HGTV, then it means you have to pick up the hammer and the brush or at least a phone and your checkbook (laughs) if you want to see real improvement there. Now, the parallel to that is what Jesus actually instructs us with here, what he'll teach us, because Jesus will warn us of a very real danger that exists that you could be present here and not benefit from it at all. That you could have been present there, in fact, present with Jesus while he taught this message you, you could have been a, a first-hand eyewitness. You could have been there to hear it with your own ears and yet not benefit from it at all. You could hear God's word preached and listen to the gospel be heralded again and again and walk away totally and completely unchanged. Jesus would even say you could even hear it and have joy in your heart at the sound of it. You could even hear it and like it and say that you agree with it. And yet it have no real impact and make no real difference in your life at all. You see that Jesus will, in this moment, he's going to employ here an illustration of the reality that stood before him in this mixed multitude that was beginning to gather as his popularity grew. And this, this moment, this parable that he uses, will serve as both a warning and an appeal to those who were present before him. Now, look in your Bible, chapter 4, Gospel of Mark. Beginning in verse 1. And again, Jesus began to teach by the sea. And a great multitude was gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. 
We know that he's been hanging out around Capernaum, and right outside of Capernaum, there's still a natural amphitheater that, that rolls, the hill rolls down to the water there. And so many believe that's where Jesus would have sat on a boat and along the hillside in a natural amphitheater so that his voice was echoing and reverberating across the water and then up onto the hillside. Many had gathered in this multitude to hear Jesus teach and he, he shifts the way he's teaching now where he's less direct and he begins now a rhythm and a pattern of teaching in parables. And he began to teach them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some seed fell on the stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, its roots were scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some of the seed fell amongst thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground, and it yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced some thirtyfold, some sixtyfold, some even a hundredfold. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are on the outside, all things now come in parables. So that seeing, he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah, seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And he said to them, remember he's with his disciples alone, away from the multitude, now he's going to explain it. <clears throat> he says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, the logos. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes and immediately takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness and they have no root in themselves. And so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the world's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones that sow among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things entering in choke the logos, the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, some even a hundredfold. If you remember in chapter one, when Mark's just getting rolling, it tells you that Jesus goes out preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Remember the good news, that's what gospel means. The good news that Jesus taught was connected to the message of the kingdom. They were not two separate ideas. It's something we spent an entire Sunday morning discussing together. We explored the concept of the kingdom of God, and then we discovered it being a central theme throughout the Bible from the beginning in Eden all the way to the end in what we call paradise. You find the theme of a king and a kingdom. Remember, Jesus' teachings then will almost exclusively be regarding a coming kingdom, and then his life and ministry provide a glimpse into that kingdom where he's going to heal people and cast out demons and brings joy and gives life. 
Because the kingdom of God is a place where people are made well and whole, they're set free, and a place where there's joy and love and peace. And so he gives you a glimpse into that kingdom. Remember, he came to take back, to redeem creation, and to set up to restore his kingdom. The tale of humanity, you could really tell it just in the tale of three gardens. There's Eden, where God creates a perfect place, and creation and hope were lost in that place. But then the second story, in the story of humanity... It's the story of Gethsemane, the second garden. It's a place where God chooses to redeem the imperfect place where hope was once again restored. And then Jesus from the cross, he references another garden, paradise, where he tells the thief on the cross next to him, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. It's literally translated a garden enclosed. He's speaking of heaven, of God taking us back to Eden, bringing the reality of Eden, of heaven and earth colliding, is a new reality that awaits us in our future. That's what he's talking about. Jesus had told him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Hope was realized because of a garden tomb. You see, the whole of creation could be told in the tale of three different gardens. And Mark's gospel thus far has made it clear that Jesus is starting some new thing. And that new thing is he's establishing his kingdom, but he's yet to tell us what the kingdom is like and how he's going to establish it. And that's what he's going to begin to do. He's going to begin to use parables to explain the kingdom of God that he's establishing. You should know it wasn't what the Jews wanted or expected at all. They wanted and expected someone, a Messiah, the promised deliverer, to show up with a sword and to drive back their oppressors, the Romans, who sat in power over top of them during this segment of history. But Jesus came in great contrast to that. He came with love and subtlety. He came with submission to be a sacrifice. Rather than to overthrow the Romans and restore the kingdom just of the Jews and their own autonomous power, Jesus would instead establish a new kingdom where he would include every person, Jew and Gentile. He's beginning a new family, which is what he's just told us in the previous section. You remember, his own family came to greet him. We talked about the Mark and Sandwich, where his own family came to greet him, and then people questioned, well, who's in and who's out? And how he defined that for us is that his family are made up with the people who were willing to bend a knee to him in humility and recognize who he was and their great need for him. But what is that kingdom, that family going to look like and how will he establish it? Well, Jesus won't answer those sorts of questions with a series of lectures. Instead, he answers them with a series of parables that cause you to imagine and think what it might be like. Now, a parable, it's two Greek words squished together, parabolo. It means to cast something alongside of. It's the idea, it, it paints the picture of you're, you're sharing something. Jesus is teaching something about the kingdom. Now he's going to cast alongside those truths and realities, these parables that will land there as illustrations. I mean, you, he, he could have come just to lecture and explain the truth, but instead he threw out these creative stories that embodied and depicted the truth that left people with something more to chew on, something more to imagine. Now, parables, they're a common teaching tool in the rabbis in the first century. This is not some new tool that Jesus just made up and a new trend that he started. The difference, though, was that they were usually, parables were usually about a kingdom and about royalty, whereas Jesus will come and he will use these parables to teach about his kingdom and about how his kingdom will make the commoner royalty. That's the difference is that it becomes such a shocking thing that usually the parables just address those in the palace, but Jesus will have the parables address those who are the lowly ones, 
the peasants, you and me, that it will address them saying that God will elevate them to a royal status where they will be once again united with God in his kingdom where he is king and they are his children and co-heirs with him. Jesus isn't just using a story here to try to draw bored people back in. That's what people like I do. Parables are, all, are very, very different from a simple illustration because a parable wasn't used to always just simply make things more clear. In fact, what Jesus describes is that he used parables to at the same time simultaneously reveal and conceal truth. That's what he just said here, that that's what he's doing. The parables of Jesus were used in part to divide his audience. Those who are inside who had believed him and embraced him. They, they found life and hope and meaning and power in these stories. But those on the outside felt lost and confused. And remember, he's defined for us who is on the outside. It's those who, who remember, failed to see that he came with heaven's authority and power in the previous story, who, who failed to see their own need for Jesus. And so they're the ones who are on the outside of this, scratching their heads. Listen, it's possible that if Jesus would have shown up and not used parables, that it could have created some problems for him. And maybe that's part of why he did it. It would have been dangerous for him, I think, if he had continued to be so direct, because the Romans would have felt so threatened by him talking about his kingdom. But to shift into parables took the edge off at least for a season so that he could have a ministry that outlasted just the period of a couple of months and said it would last a few years. For him also, being direct maybe would have been more dangerous or more problematic, even in the fact that so many people, I think, if he had been really direct about what he was doing and not doing, I think there would have been uh, so many in the multitude who would have left him so quickly. Instead, they slowly thin out their numbers over time as Jesus patiently reveals himself to them. You see, the parables were a story for the multitude, they're a window for the disciples, though, to see what God was doing, speaking life and truth into them. But they were also a mirror for those who rejected Jesus and were so closed off to him, a mirror that would reveal their own error, the their own hardness of their hearts. It's the great preacher of old. His name's G. Campbell Morgan. He said it this way. He said, our Lord was not adopting a method, speaking of his use of parables, not of preventing these men from coming back to himself, but he was employing the last and only method possible in public teaching for luring them toward himself. This parable is recorded in three places, and in Matthew's record of it, there's more detail given that makes it very clear that that's what Jesus was trying to do with the parables, was draw in the audience who had already become so hard-hearted to him. Now, you need to know that they were very effective, his parables were. They cut like a knife. So effective, in fact, that after hearing a series of them in Matthew 21, the religious leaders are determined after hearing a series of his parables and realizing that he's addressing them and their rejection of him, that they are determined to kill him. These things cut deep. Now, why a parable, though? Well, because they effectively revealed and concealed the truth at the very same time. But what are these parables about in general terms? Well, they're almost exclusively about the kind of kingdom Jesus is establishing. He's letting people know what God is up to in the world. And the first of his parables and the three gospels that it's recorded is always this one. This is the first, the parable of the sower. It's a parable about a sower, some soil, and some seed. And I personally think that the seed is really the star of the show in this story. 
Remember, as we embark on our journey into Jesus' parables, that these are first and foremost, they're about the kingdom of God before they're about any individual. So it's trying to show us what God is up to, what he's accomplishing, and how he'll accomplish it, but then we're meant to see ourselves in it as well. So what is Jesus if it's about the kingdom? What's he teaching us about his kingdom? And there's a few things I'm going to throw out there for you to consider, and then we'll wrap up by talking about the soils that Jesus illustrates here with. The first thing about his kingdom he's teaching us is that his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is surprising. That's the first thing. Jesus using farming as means of communication was not at all surprising to anyone. His first century audience in this region of the country, these are blue-collar people. Many of them either worked on the Sea of Galilee fishing or they would work in an agrarian culture where they're working with agriculture. They're in the dirt, sowing seed, tilling the ground. They knew farming. You could probably even look out from where Jesus is teaching and see people farming on the hills along the Sea of Galilee. In our modern setting, it would be like if Jesus showed up and he sat down and says, there was once a guy stuck in traffic. Just a very familiar thing. It would be like him sitting down and saying, there was once a man who scattered tweets and Facebook posts about political rants. And you'd shake your head and be like, yeah, I know, I know that guy. Like, yes, I've seen this before. I know how this plays out. This wasn't only a familiar concept to them because it was something that they geographically understood, even by practice and lifestyle, to sow seed, to work the ground, to farm. But also it's a familiar thing because of what is housed in the Old Testament talking about this very concept. The Old Testament gives the imagery again and again of the sower and seed representing Israel being God's garden that he will care for. In Jesus' parable, he specifically quotes from Isaiah. So I'll just reference where Isaiah uses these terms. In, in verse 12, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 6 in verse 12 of chapter 4 here. Now, it leaves us scratching our head because what he says is almost troubling, where we start to wonder, is he saying that he doesn't want everyone to understand and be saved? Well, I personally don't think that's really what he's saying, because the message that he quotes from Isaiah is the middle of a passage where Isaiah comes to the people, bringing a message of judgment, but also of hope. Judgment that they're going to be soon led away captive, but hope that a remnant would be saved and become a blessing to the whole world. Isaiah 55, it it says it this way, beginning in verse 10. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but but they water the earth and make it bring forth bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which it was sent. Isaiah 28, quoting from Isaiah in that chapter, on the heels of talking about God's Savior and Deliverer, how he's going to come, Messiah will arrive. God then explains that justice and righteousness will reign when he shows up. And then he tells them, in the covenant of death will be no more, that your agreement with hell itself will be broken because it will be conquered by him. And then God tells him, Isaiah 28, verse 28, 21, he says, for the Lord... Yahweh, your God, will rise up. And I will do an awesome work, he says, an unusual and foreign, surprising work in your midst. He said, I'll level the ground. And then I'll plant the seed that will reestablish my nation, that will reestablish my family, track with me, that will reestablish my work in the world. It was God's promise that exile and captivity would finally come to an end. And now God among us, walking on the earth, Jesus, uses the story of a sower and seed to make the shocking statement. He's saying that captivity and exile are over, 
and that God is now establishing his kingdom just like he promised. That's why he quotes from Isaiah the prophet is because he's pointing to them saying, you all know what Isaiah said and that you are missing it and you're still missing it, but I'm here and I'm telling you that captivity and exile is over, that God will bring you home again. Which means if all of this is true, it means that Jesus teaching here, although for us it seems like a benign little story about a farmer, it was a very bold statement that God is planting his garden again in me. In fact, he's, he's pointing to himself saying that hope has arrived again and that I'm here to bring an end to everything that you've hated about this life and this world, which means that Jesus is here teaching about God replanting something, about God revisiting his garden, not saying that he's done with the Jews and the nation of Israel, but that he would make his kingdom both Jew and Gentile that the long-awaited kingdom of God would come and that God would now make good on his promises to his people to once and for all rescue them. That's what was so shocking, so surprising. You see, I'm telling you that some of these things were so familiar to them, but I told you the first thing I think we should note about this is that Jesus' kingdom is surprising because all of his parables were about his kingdom. Listen, although this concept was familiar and even can be found in ancient literature where where the idea of someone telling a parable where there's a sower, it was a standard symbol in ancient writing that would, would be speaking of a teacher it would take the role of a sower. And then the seed would be his teaching, his words. And then the soil would be his pupils, his students. The difference, though, is that ancient Greek writers, who were Jesus' contemporaries or even just shortly before him, they said that what stifled the growth of the seed was the intellectual deficiency of the soil, the hearer. Jesus says something very different. He's teaching here that what stifles the seed are issues of the heart. It's not about an intellectual deficiency. Jesus says it's about the hardness of someone's heart. It's about the condition of their heart, not about their ears being able to hear, but about their heart being willing to hear and to yield. As one commentator put it, he said, Jesus' parables do not attribute the loss to some intellectual deficit, the failures are caused by cosmic forces. It's Satan snatching the seed. By social forces withering under persecution. By ethical breakdowns, temporal anxieties, and the lure of riches. The reason for the failure of the seed is the lamentable spiritual state of the hearer's heart. Not the lamentable state of the hearer's mind at all. Now talk about with me just for a moment and consider the seed. And why the seed is so surprising what Jesus teaches here. Because the kingdom is being established, he says, by planting a seed rather than by wielding a sword, which is what everyone anticipated, that one day God would come as a deliverer and he'd draw a sword and he'd, he'd uh, train some army with him and they would go out on conquest just to be the next dominating force in the world. But Jesus instead will topple the world system completely in a totally different way than anyone had anticipated, that anyone had foreseen. You see, the message of Jesus' gospel is so very surprising because it's a message of forgiveness and grace, of hope and love, of relief from the law. It's not about just a new powerful force overthrowing the previous regime. No, not at all. You see, the power of the little seed is surprising because it, it's showing us an illustration of the power in the gospel to change a life. It's, it's crazy that you can plant anything you want in the world, anything. You could plant a bottle of Coke, a, a coin, or a rock in your backyard, and it does nothing. Nothing happens. It stays the same. Only a seed 
has the power to morph and to grow and to give life. A tiny little seed can grow into a monstrous tree and have a monstrous impact. And by implication, only what the sower is planting here can ever give life. Anything else that comes is a a shallow, empty, hollow promise. But Jesus is saying, what I give to you, if you'll receive it, is the only thing you'll find in this life with transformative power. Now, what that seed represents, I think, is almost surprising even for us. Because the Greek word that's used here again and again when Jesus talks about the seed, and then he says, and the seed is the word, is the Greek word logos. Which in the New Testament, every time it's used, it would either describe Jesus himself. Remember, John's gospel begins with, in the beginning was the word, the logos. And the logos was with God, and the word, the logos, was God. And the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, one translation puts it. So the word in scripture was always either talking about Jesus specifically as a person, or it was talking about Jesus' gospel message. There is a different phrasing in Greek language that would be used if the New Testament writers were talking about just the scriptures themselves. So what I'm telling you is this is maybe less about hearing a Bible study as it is about receiving Jesus himself and the message that Jesus would herald. It's not just about the scriptures, but it's about Jesus specifically. Jesus is the word of God, the logos. Words can express what is otherwise unseen, your thoughts and your emotions, and the idea that God, God who is unseen, who we can't understand and comprehend, who, who we can't reach out and take hold of, that Jesus comes as the visible expression of the invisible God, that he is the logos, the word of God breathed into the world. He makes visible what's unseen and unattainable. What's untouchable becomes very tangible in Jesus. You could say it this way, that Jesus is what God has to say to the world. He's the logos of God, the very breath, the word, the expression, the image of God. And so yes, I believe that you can apply in this story as you read it, you can picture and apply the idea of, of our reaction to a Bible study or to scripture. However, I believe in the context, Jesus is speaking specifically about people's reaction to himself and to his message, which may be surprising for you. The second thing, though, about this that, that I think is interesting and surprising is that Jesus' kingdom is all-inclusive. It's all-inclusive. It's open to everyone, which was a shocker to everyone who was listening. Jesus said the sower, picture it, God recklessly goes out and casts seed everywhere so it lands on every kind of soil. Not just an exclusive group, not just so careful to sprinkle it in one area like many who were of the nation of Israel, the Jews, had thought that that's how God would work. But God had always promised that his goal was to make his glory shine throughout all the nations, even the Gentiles. You see, the kingdom of God is open to all. God sows the life-giving seed of Jesus. He spreads that seed everywhere, absolutely without discrimination. This parable gave the disciples both encouragement and, I think, with it a warning. The encouragement was that the kingdom of God was open to all, that God would not discriminate. The encouragement was because the kingdom, though it had begun as a humble seed that would eventually go and die And when a seed enters the ground and dies and is buried, it would be able to spring up in new life. And eventually, the kingdom would grow and multiply in size and in influence. It was encouraging for them one day to look back and realize Jesus, the Logos, 
would be placed in a tomb, but that would not be the end because new life would spring from that tomb and multiply and influence and impact throughout future generations all over the world. But the warning is that there would be many that would not allow the truth of the message, the power of Jesus, to take root in their lives. And although completely all-inclusive, the third thing the kingdom is surprising about, or what's surprising about the kingdom, is that the Jesus' kingdom is also exclusive, it says here. That it's going to be experienced by few. Yes, it's available to all, but it will only be experienced by few. In fact, in his story, three-quarters of those who heard the seed would ultimately refuse to receive that seed personally. That The ground itself would reject it. Jesus would say it this way in Matthew 7. He'd say, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few will ever find it. Or in Matthew 12, this is what he said. He said, the person who isn't with me is against me, and the person who isn't gathering with me is scattering. The message of Jesus was always, it's always been, that you're either all in or you're not in at all. There's only one soil in this story that receives the seed and produces any lasting fruit, which leads us really to one final observation about this, and then we'll jump into the idea just of the soils for a moment. And that's that the kingdom of Jesus parable is both a window, this is the fourth thing, it's both a window and a mirror. It's a window in that the parable of Jesus gives his people an opportunity to look in and get a glimpse at what the kingdom of God is like, but simultaneously it It functions as a mirror that begs us to take a hard look at ourselves. In fact, when he starts the story, he starts with a statement, verse 3, listen. And in the English language, we miss what he's saying because it's a command to listen. He's commanding them to hear because you know it's possible to hear and not really hear something. If you've got young kids, you're reminded of it often when you say, clean your room, and they say, yeah, yeah, okay. They've heard you, but they didn't really hear you because they have no intention of doing anything. It's your alarm clock. You hear it, but you don't really hear it because you snooze it. What Jesus is saying is hear with intent to do something. You need to really hear this. He's not just telling them be careful that you hear. Really what he's telling them is be careful how you hear. Listen to the story and teaching. That's what it begs for us. Listen to the story and teaching of Jesus and his kingdom. Let it sink down deep into the soil of your own life. Don't just hear it and be dismissive of it. Don't just hear it when it's convenient because someone else is telling you it. Hear it again and again and again because you're preaching its message, its hope, its truth to yourself all the time. Preaching to yourself of his life and his promises and his kingdom throughout the week. Listen, Jesus is he's either God or he's, he's some misguided maniac. And if he's anything less than God, then he should be dismissed. He should be rejected like the soils that, that made no room for him to have lasting fruit in their lives. But if he, in fact, is God, then he must be heard and received and embraced. He must. So how do we do it? How do we receive him? Because the soils that he gives here as an example are are maybe something that we're meant to look at as a mirror for ourselves. And in fact, the soils that are mentioned here, he's already given us an illustration, or he's already pinpointed one of them in his audience, when in chapter 3, verse 5, he already introduced us to some of those soil conditions that he mentions here in his parable, when it says that when they brought that man who had a withered hand before Jesus on the Sabbath to test Jesus and see what he might do if he'd heal him and break their traditions, Jesus, it said, was angry with them because of the hardness of their hearts. One of the soils was already right there before him. 
a hard heart that made no room for him. There's four different types of soil. That's the first one. Their, their hearts, some in that crowd that day and even today, their hearts are hard to Jesus. Like a dirt path that's been walked over too many times, they've had enough of the hard crew world that they're stuck in. And they've been crushed and maybe even just disappointed or even let down one too many times. Or maybe they were just too harsh, too hard, too proud to humbly admit their need for a savior. They'd expected and dreamed of something else out of this life. Of someone else or something else being their savior and source of peace. And when it sold them short, their heart was hard. And so there was no room for Jesus. They refused to believe what Jesus was saying. And maybe that's some who are even here. Brothers in that crowd that day, Jesus said that the soil, that, that their belief in Jesus, their embrace of Jesus was just shallow. It wasn't so hard that they couldn't let him penetrate their heart, that they were so close to the idea, but they let him come in, but just so briefly. Like soil that's shallow and, and inhibits the, the roots from going deep, from producing then any lasting fruit. These people in front of him, they like what Jesus provided. After all, Jesus was a first century food truck, when you think about it. Showing up in different spots and giving out free meals. There were temporary benefits, but they'd soon cease. And so when they ceased, so too would those people from following Jesus. They'd move on. They liked the prospect of no more problems, but Jesus wasn't here to rid them of what they viewed as their biggest problem, the Roman Empire. Their problems would still remain, so they would soon move on. There were others who were there in that multitude that, that they liked when Jesus had healed them of their disease, but they're living in such a primitive culture that, that soon they'd contract another illness, and so soon they too would move on because of an unmet expectation. They liked that, some who sat before him. They liked that their friends and their family were there with them. But as soon as their friends and their family would give up, soon they would be very alone in their faith. And so soon they would too move on. In those hard, difficult, tragic, overwhelming moments that all of us face in life, those moments, moments either cause us to doubt Jesus or they cause a confirmation of our deep need for Jesus. It's one or the other. Hard moments happen, difficult things come, and it either causes us to doubt Jesus and his goodness, or it confirms our understanding of our deep need for Jesus. In those moments, when Jesus can give you comfort, when he can give you hope, when he remains to offer you peace, he can give you courage and direction and strength. In those moments, you can either be so thankful to have Jesus, or so overwhelmed that you choose just to leave Jesus. And Jesus recognized that there are many in the crowd that would soon face adversity. They'd face temptation or, or feel very much alone. And the shallowness of their faith would be revealed as they threw in the towel and walked away from him, saying to themselves, Jesus is not worth the struggle. And maybe that's you. For others that day, there was a third type of soil that, that functioned like a mirror. And their faith in Jesus, it was just in competition. It was in competition. It was, it was planted there, but there were other things that its roots were just as deep as its was. And it began to choke out their love for Jesus. Their soil did have just that. Many things planted at the same depth as their love for him. So soon those other passions would prove to be a greater and stronger passion in competition to him. And Jesus would no longer remain. Jesus looked at them and knew that soon they'd depart because of their pursuit of riches or comfort in something else. 
that was not easily reconciled with their own faith in Jesus. Soon they'd depart because of their fear of man. Their bondage to what other people thought of them was more important than their stand for Jesus. Soon they'd depart because their desire to feel loved by someone placed them in the arms of an individual that didn't share their passion for Jesus. And they trade that, that temporal love of a created thing, a person, for the eternal love of the creator of all things. Soon they depart because their sexual expression was the true driving passion of their life. Or they depart because they had things and people that, that they were more loyal to than even Jesus. My friends, the soil, the, the seed, excuse me, the seed needs the right environment. In order to produce lasting fruit is what Jesus tells us here. The seed cannot be improved on. It's already got the life-giving, life-transforming power. It's the soil that's the issue. The parable is telling me that the seed always had amazing potential and power, but it tells me that it's incredibly important that I prepare the soil of my own heart to receive, not just a Bible study, but to receive Jesus himself. See, the, the, the seed amongst thorns might be more subtle for many of us. It's listening to Jesus to hear what we disagree with. It's showing up and listening to hear what we disagree with rather than having the goal to be that we listen to encounter Jesus. There's a subtle nuance there because it's great that you show up and that you don't take what I say at face value, but that you search the scriptures. That's a wonderful thing. I will always encourage you and applaud you to do. However, it's a dangerous thing when you always sit down just waiting and looking for something that you disagree with because that's when you turn off. It's subtle because for some of us, the seed amongst thorns, it's, it's listening for someone else rather than for myself. And it's fine. And maybe, maybe it's a good and even a selfless thing that we can read something in the book or, or that we can learn something of him or hear something from scripture and think, man, I wish that so-and-so was hearing this because I, I hope that they're catching this because they really need this. It can be born out of a selfless heart, out of a selfless position of love and care for others. But we have to be careful that it doesn't replace our first priority of encountering Jesus personally in our own brokenness. The seed amongst thorns, it's so subtle. It's listening and reading just to learn rather than to experience Jesus himself. Okay, now please extend grace and patience to me in what I'm about to say because you might think it's blasphemous, but I don't think it is. But you can search the scriptures later and decide for yourself. The scriptures are a means to an end. Jesus told us, he told the crowd that was around him, specifically the religious leaders, he says, you pour over the scriptures because you think that they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. And his point was, you're missing it. You're missing the very point of it. The point of it was to elevate Jesus himself. The Old Testament was all about anticipation. The New Testament about the manifestation of what they anticipated. The, the book of Acts was about the proclamation of what God had done and how Jesus had arrived. The epistles is all about the explanation of what Jesus accomplished. And then Revelation is about the, the consummation of all that God has done through Jesus. The whole book is meant to push you into an encounter with Jesus. And if we just show up or open the book, even on our own, just with the thought of what can I learn today, and we miss out on experiencing Jesus personally, then we've missed it completely. And there's a thorny bush that's beginning to choke the life out of what God intended for us. For me personally, it means I can't come to the book with the first priority or first lens that I'm looking at it through being what's here for us as a church this week 
the first lens I have to look at it through is what's here for me? Jesus, what do you have to say to me? What would you like from me? Jesus, where do you address my brokenness? Not just where do you give us a word of exhortation. But there were some in the crowd that have faith in Jesus that would have a temporal and an eternal outworking, the healthy, good soil. Their love and passion for Jesus would be the, the guiding and dominant passion in their life. It'd be greater than any other thing that jockeyed for their attention. It would be the grid that they'd run their own decisions through was, was their love and passion for Jesus. Remember, remember, please, fruitfulness in the kingdom does not mean wealth and fame and long life. It means freedom and peace and joy. The byproduct of being a member of the kingdom of God are, are that you inherit things that money cannot buy, the things that are truly valuable and so very scarce in our world. The disciples had often scratched their heads at Jesus' reaction to the crowd because sometimes Jesus seemed really unimpressed by how many people gathered. In fact, sometimes he even withdrew from those crowds, which shocked them. Like, why are you doing that? Look at your popularity. But now they're getting a glimpse into why the size of the crowd never mattered to Jesus. It's because he knew that so few of them were truly believing and receiving the seed, receiving the logos, receiving him personally. Okay, let's land this plane. Here's how we wrap up. There's a word here that, that's troubling for me that, that I'll tell you specifically for those of you who are younger. It's valid for all of us, but specifically I'd address those of you who are younger. I tell you that as your pastor, there's, there's something in this parable that Jesus told here that I just hate about this story. There's a truth that's revealed that, that for me is deeply troubling. And that's that in this story, three out of four of those who heard had faith that wouldn't last. And the statistical analysis in the 21st century, unfortunately, aligns with that thought, especially amongst young people. That in between 70 and 80%, some studies as much as 82% that I've read, of young people who check box if yes, Christian, by the time they finish college, no longer check that box at all, because they no longer have an interest or love or passion for Jesus. And, and I would argue maybe it's because what they were passionate about before wasn't Jesus, Maybe it was fanaticism, maybe it was many other things, or maybe they let other things come and choke it out. To my young friends, can I just say this? You're not a statistic, though. You're a person in the multitude that Jesus stood in front of. A statistic, it's static, it doesn't have choice. A person does. You have a choice of what you'll do with your life. It's concerning to me because it's a reality that we still live in. Jesus' truth is proven timeless, and that so many who'd sign up Yes Team Jesus at some point bail on him. But my friends, you're really not a statistic. You're a member of the crowd, a person with a choice. And so make the choice daily to follow Jesus. Now to you who are younger and you who are older, just remember what the story teaches us, that the seed, the kingdom of God, that the seed in his kingdom is so very surprising. Because Jesus' kingdom is going to be established by planting a seed rather than just swinging a sword around. Now think through this with me for a moment. In the New Testament, you're compared to, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're compared to several things. And one of them is that, that you have a spiritual battle. You are in conflict and you're told to, to put on the armor of God and you're told even to, to pick up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. 
you're told you're in a battle, but you're also compared to ambassadors who are going out to represent Jesus, sent out as ministers of reconciliation. That's the second thing, not just a battle and a warrior in that battle, but you're an ambassador, heaven's representative. And then the New Testament also uses agrarian terms explaining over and over again how God will do it, how he'll send you out, how he'll grow his kingdom. And you are essentially a farmer. So you're a warrior, you're an ambassador, you're a farmer. But please hear me on this. The battle we're in has a singular enemy. And it's not your neighbor. You're to love your neighbor. It's not even those who classify themselves as your enemy. You're to love your enemy, Jesus said. You have one enemy, and the illustration of you having found yourself in a battle, the one enemy is who the Bible calls the Satan, the liar, and his minions. Who, like a kid at a pool party who's being pushed backwards into the pool, at some point stops fighting and instead starts grabbing everyone around them to drag them with him. That's exactly what they're up to. Listen, Jesus' followers do not have an enemy on this earth. Yes, the word of God is a sword used against our enemy who's a spiritual foe. And we use it against our enemy to combat the lies that he throws our way. Yes, the word of God, it cuts deep, but it's not meant to be swung at people. It's meant to cut deep in me. In Hebrews 4, it says that it cuts deep. It judges even the thoughts and intentions, intentions of the heart. The way that the word cuts, it's meant to cut on me. It's a double-edged sword. It's not just for attacking that enemy. It's recognition that there is a part of that enemy that still resides inside of me. I don't need to go find that enemy in someone else. I have one enemy that I look for and that I come back with the sword of the spirit. And the other edge of that sword that, that is to cut is to cut inside of me and not someone else. Listen, yes, put on your spiritual army for your spiritual battle against your spiritual enemy. But be careful not to carry a sword into a field that's ready for harvest. It's not a battleground. Remember what Jesus said. Matthew 9, he said when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In Hosea 10, he, the prophet, he tells his people, he says, sow for yourself righteousness and reap mercy. Break up your fallow ground. Just think about this. We are to sow seed. And for walking around with a, a sharp blade of a plow, ready to break things up and cut real deep, just know that what God told the prophet was to tell the people that the ground that needed plowing was their own fallow ground. Break up your own fallow ground, your own hard heart. Allow the sword of the Spirit to do that in you. The Apostle Paul, he would explain our role by saying, about himself and some of his friends. He says, I, I came and I planted. And then that guy, Apollos, he came and he watered. And then God alone miraculously gave the increase, brought new life and salvation. You see, our job is just to plant seed, to water it and to wait. God alone can do the miraculous work of bringing new life. Yes, put on your spiritual armor for your spiritual battle against your spiritual enemy, but be careful not to carry a sword into a field that's ready for harvest because it's not your battleground. It's a field ready for harvest. And listen, inside that field are a lot of people that we know that this is true, that the fall did not diminish God's love for them. 
then whatever issue, whatever designation, whatever struggle that person is dealing with, it doesn't diminish God's love for them, and it should not diminish my love or grace or patience for them either. I must be careful not to see myself as a warrior with a sword approaching them. I'm to come humbly with a bag of seed, believing that the transforming power, the life-giving power of Jesus can take root in their lives. You know, I'm yet to meet someone who came to faith in Jesus because of a truth bomb. Just something that one of us like lobs their direction and then stands back to watch it hit. And sure, when, when we make those big statements that, that are harsh and judgmental and we say we're speaking the truth and that's all that matters, sure it makes a loud noise and it leaves a crater for everybody to see, but one, don't we realize that once the dust settles, the ground in their heart is left so very hard and our opportunity to be a voice and to have a role in their life to plant seed in the future is torched. Truth bombs will not accomplish what we want. Patience with others while they're in the process is what is needed, and a farming imagery. We need to give them the same grace and patience that we may have needed as God was working to reshape our own heart, and we need to faithfully plant the seed of the gospel in them. You see, there's this coded warning inside this story. Because the majority of those in the crowd, they, they would in the end be proven to be soils that would reject Jesus. And there's a part of this that can feel more like bad news than good news because of the discouraging odds in Jesus' parable. But there's incredible encouragement here too in Jesus' parable. In that the kind of fruit that's produced in the heart that would be open is so unexpected and like so jaw-dropping. We don't get it because we don't plant much and or at least I don't, I'm more of a black thumb than a green thumb or whatever. Like. But what it tells you here is that it yields a, a harvest, it yields back 30-fold, 60-fold, even 100-fold to yield a, a return of 3-fold or 5-fold or 10 was to have a great yield in a year. So what Jesus says is unheard of, miraculous, impossible fruit from a powerful seed. Don't lose heart. The seed alone has that kind of power. Jesus does. Wow, oh wow, oh wow. When Jesus touches the life of a person, when their heart finally softens and gives him space, the transforming work he can do in their life. Yes, only one of four soils allowed for the seed to grow, but the seed was never the issue. The seed was always power-packed with life. And when it was received by the right kind of soil, it produced a massive yield and had a massively powerful impact. Like I said, we've never had a green thumb in the O'Keefe home. It's never been good. And so even when I read some of this, I, I have a hard time picturing it because most of the things that we plant end up dying. And more often than not, it's not because of neglect. It's not because of a lack of water that our house plants seem to die. It's that we love them to death. It's that we give them too much attention. Sometimes we, we almost apply too much pressure on those little seeds to do what they're meant to do. It's the combo, really, of too little patience and often too much water around our house that, that causes our houseplants to die and want to be, request to be placed on the curb for the trash man. I remember when Riley was first born, and you know that moment when they take you out to discharge you the, the day after you've brought a little human into the world? It's a very weird moment because it took an entire team of medical professionals to welcome her into the world, and then all night long, a bigger team... Uh, we're checking on her all night to make sure she continued to live in this world. And by the next morning, mid-morning, they're walking you to your car. And the only question they ask you is, do you know how to buckle them in? 
And then it, it, they're tricking you because when you turn around to buckle them and you turn back, the nurse, all you see is her back as she enters the hospital doors. It's when you look at your spouse and say, shouldn't there be a questionnaire? Like some sort of a test. I mean, for me, I looked at Lindsay. I was like, did you tell them about the houseplants? Like our track record is really bad. We can't, things we bring in our home die. Like they don't stay alive. Did we, did we tell them about the houseplants? We're, this has not been good for us. Now, the good news for us is that kids are more resilient than plants. And our issue with our plants have typically been more to do with the soil than anything else. It was not the seed. It's that we would turn the pot into a mini swamp that flies seem to enjoy more than the seeds do. The issues we've had have never been to do with the potency, the power of the seed itself. Because a seed is even more resilient, not just in the soil, but even than a child. The seed has incredible power. There's a fortress that King Herod lived in, well, never lived, he built it, in Masada, it's out by the Dead Sea, 2,000 years ago. It was destroyed shortly after the life of Jesus and sat dormant out there. No one's ever occupied it. A couple of years ago, archaeologists found seeds for some, uh, some figs, some dates, and then some grapes. And those seeds were what they stored up there to feed Herod the Great himself. They took those seeds and threw them 2,000 years later into soil, and those dead, dry seeds all of a sudden started to spring up. So that you can now purchase the dates that King Herod ate, and soon you can drink the wine that, that royalty drank 2,000 years ago, which is insane. Because those seeds, 2,000 years later, still possess amazing, miraculous power to give life. My friends, there is greater power 2,000 years later in the seed of the gospel than anything else in this world. Don't lose heart and think. And look and think that, that, that they seem to, that the seed seems to have fallen dormant, that the seed seems to be lifeless because you faithfully planted it again and again in the lives of your children or in the lives of your family or in your workplace or in your friend group. The seed is power packed with the potential for life. And if the seed is there, pray then that the soil softens because the seed's power remains. But don't feel the pressure to overwhelm and flood the soil. Be willing to trust God to bring the right amount of rain to soften that heart. He's good at what he's done. He's really good at what he does. Look at yourself and what he's done in you. Faithfully plant the seed and then step back and pray that God will soften the soil. Because the sower in Jesus' story is not responsible for the success, only for the sowing of the seed. And as we close in a song in just a moment, I'd ask, then you pray for the, the people that you have faithfully planted the seed of the gospel in. You pray for them that God would, would patiently yet persistently continue his work in their life. Pray that he would prepare the soil to, to receive the word, to receive the life-transforming power of Jesus. It's crazy when you think about it. All the world wants the same thing. We all want peace. We just want unity. We want safety and love and joy. The Christian worldview, though, tells me that there's only one way to those things. And it's no amount of time. It's no amount of technology. It's no amount of education because we've had all of those things for thousands of years. And look at us. We are as broken and divided as ever before. Only the seed only the word made flesh that dwells among us, only Jesus is the answer. As he said, he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no other way forward to life as the Father intended. No way to be made right with the Father, nor to make creation right again, unless we receive the seed, the word, 
unless we receive Jesus in brokenness and humility. 